0: Verse 35, So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who dwells in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their hearts, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw His glory, and he spoke of Him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious God, we are very grateful for your word and we read here of, of things which are far beyond our ability to comprehend and understand fully. When we read in a passage of scripture that you have judged men by blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts, uh, we tremble before that. We recognize that you are sovereign and yet we are responsible to believe the truth we thank you that in your word you speak of these things and give us a glimpse into the, the working of your providence and your sovereignty in the lives of men and women who hear the truth and reject it. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand according to your word the causes of unbelief today and may we tremble before a God who is high and holy and exalted and far, far higher than we are. And may you be glorified to give us great, by giving us the grace to think rightly about these things. And may You continue to honor and glorify Your Word by judging those who reject the truth and opening the eyes of others that they may believe and glorify Jesus Christ and and honor You for all of eternity. We bow before You and pray that You would be honored through the preaching of Your Word and that You would be glorified here through our study together. In Christ's name, Amen. John chapter 12, and we're looking together today at these verses. Um, This is toward the end of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the public ministry of Jesus. We're now in the final week of Jesus' life. And uh, this is one of those passages which kind of is very difficult to explain and very difficult for us to get our minds and our hearts around. And yet we must allow the truth to stand as it has here been recorded by John. And uh, so as we work our way through this, we're going to be grappling with some deeper theological issues, some things that are uh, easy for us to grasp, some things that come natural to us, and other things which are, are not that easy for us to grasp. Uh, Some things which are just far behind us and are far ahead, a higher above us, I should say. And we must always in Scripture come to a point where we just have to bow our knees and recognize that there are things in Scripture that we just cannot fully comprehend how they all work together. And uh, that is the nature, that is the case with the passage that is before us. Uh, We ended last week with verse 36 and some words there at the end of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Now this entire epistle, or this entire book, is written for the purpose of causing us to believe. That's what John tells us at the end. These things are written so that you may believe, and that believing you might have life in His name. And in believing the words of this gospel, we are regenerated. We uh, we are regenerated that we might believe, and the regeneration and the belief come together. Uh, God has written this book so that in reading these things, we would become convinced that Jesus is the Christ. And humanly speaking, John, all the way through this book, has done everything he can to convince us that Jesus is the Christ. He has given us, as it were, a backstage pass to see the teachings of Jesus up close, the teachings to the Pharisees, teachings to his disciples, teachings in the temple, out of the temple, in the city, out in the countryside, private teachings, public teachings. We have seen his miracles. We've seen sign after sign after sign all the way through the Gospel of John. And John is pouring all of this out for us so that we might believe. That's what he wants us to do, to believe. And we have seen examples in John of belief We have seen examples of genuine belief, like in chapter 1 with the disciples, in chapter 4 with the woman at the well, in chapter 4 with the villagers in Samaria, in chapter 4 with the nobleman's son, in chapter 9 with the man who was born blind and he confessed that Jesus was the Christ, in chapter 12 with the true sheep who are truly saved and belong to Him and are called to Him and are saved and kept forever. Those are all examples of genuine belief. And then we see in John examples of what we have been forced to call a false belief because we are told in John that some people believe, but they remain unregenerate. They remain hostile to Jesus, even though they have believed. So there are all kinds of examples of false belief. Like in John chapter 2, John says that Jesus did many more miracles inside the city of Jerusalem, and many people believed on him when they saw the miracles, but Jesus did not commit himself to any of them because he knew what was in man. And that is an example of people believing in him for the signs. And then we have seen that type of false belief in almost every chapter through the Gospel of John, there's no indication that when Nicodemus leaves in chapter 3 that he is a genuine believer. In chapter 5, we see the hostile Pharisees and Jesus' confrontation of them, and they walk away after seeing the man who is healed, who was a paralytic. We, they see him healed. They have the evidence before them, and they walk away unbelieving. The Pharisees do. In chapter 6, there's a whole crowd of people who have, in some sense, believed they wanted to make him king. They saw the the multiplication of the bread and the fish and the feeding of that multitude. And they wanted to make Him king. But when Jesus started teaching them, what did they do? Time out. We're done. And they walked away. In chapter 7, a whole city full of people, the leadership of which was trying to kill Jesus. And the crowds were largely unbelieving. In chapter 8, we are told about people who quote-unquote believed. But then Jesus, a couple verses later, says, You're still of your father the devil. And if you believed the truth, the truth would set you free. But you are slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, and slaves to yourself. And he identifies them as unbelievers because they still, even though John says they quote-unquote believed, they still remained in unbelief and were trying to kill Jesus. Then in chapter 9, even with the man who was born blind, healed, standing right before the Pharisees, they remained hardened in their unbelief. And then there are the false shepherds in chapter 10. They remained hardened and hostile to Jesus in their unbelief. And then in John chapter 11, after he raised Jesus or Lazarus from the dead, what did the religious leaders do? They said the fact that a noteworthy sign has been done, we cannot deny. Let's kill him. And not only should we kill him, we should kill Lazarus as well, because we want to get rid of the proof. And then in chapter 12, we have an entire crowd who has now begun to mock him and jeer him and question him. So those are all of the examples of unbelieving belief or believing unbelief, however you want to characterize it. But it is the type of belief that does not save. It is a mental assessment to the truth, uh, an outward embrace of certain facts, but not a genuine heart change, not a genuine embrace of the truth the type of embrace of the truth that jesus describes in john 6 He said you must eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you must appropriate me and have me as the bread of life and if you don't have that you will not be saved so we've seen all the way through john this distinction between belief and unbelief and then we end in verse 36 last week with that chilling statement that jesus left there and hid himself from them And they noted last week that there are two things going on there. Number one, that is an act of judgment to them. He had appealed to them in verses 35 and 36 to believe the light while they had the light and become sons of the light. And they refused to do that. They would not do that. And so what is the act of God? The act of God really... Now John is describing Jesus leaving the crowd or withdrawing from them and hiding himself from them, getting away from them. But there's something else going on there as well. Not only is he hiding himself physically from them but the light of the world hid Himself from them. That is a judicial act of God withdrawing the light from them. And it was in fulfillment to the prophecy in Isaiah. So it is not only a, an act of judgment upon them for their unbelief, but we have now come to the end of John's, of, of John's account of Jesus' public ministry. And so this is John's way of saying Jesus taught in the crowds and He was with the crowds up to this point. And now He has physically removed Himself. This was the end of being public. From here on out in John's Gospel, 13, all the way through the end of the book. There's no more mention of the crowds. We don't see Jesus with the crowds. We don't see Jesus conversing with the crowds or teaching the crowds or doing signs before the crowds. Beginning in chapter 13, it's private time with the disciples. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is with the disciples and the disciples alone. So the end of chapter 12 is the end of Jesus being with the crowds publicly. When He stepped away from them and withdrew Himself from them, He hid from them not only the light of truth, but He hid from them Himself. And now his public ministry has come to a close because the statement of the crowd in their mocking of him, asking, Who is this Son of Man? was a statement of their unbelief. Jesus gave to them one more appeal, and then he withdrew the light of truth from them. So now we come to verse 37 through 43, which we're going to be looking at part of that today. Actually, only verse 37. But you have to think of verse 37 to 43 as really one, one chunk of text. And it's kind of a parenthesis, as it were. You'll notice if you have a red-letter Bible... The red letters pick up again in verse 44. John says that Jesus cried out and began to say, and verses 44 through the end of the chapter, verse 50, is really a summary of all that Jesus has taught for the last 12 chapters. Those verses, every phrase in there, every idea in there, has been already stated and explained in discourses all the way through the Gospel of John. So now, at the end of Jesus' public ministry, now we come to a point where John Parenthetically speaks of the nation's unbelief and he does two things in verses 37 to 43 He explains their unbelief and then he illustrates for us a weak belief and you'll notice the explanation of the unbelief verse 37 There are two things working together But though he had performed so many signs before them yet. They were not believing in him The first thing that's working here is their responsibility human responsibility The second thing is the sovereignty of God and God's judicial act of judgment upon them for their unbelief, beginning in verse 38. This, that is, their unbelief, was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and He hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. So that describes or explains the unbelief of the nation. This is the the perfect place for John to give a commentary on their unbelief. The public ministry of Jesus is over. The nation has rejected Him. He has appealed to them to walk in the light of the light while they have it, knowing that they're not going to have it very long. They have rejected that. And now John stops here and parenthetically explains the unbelief of the nation. And this is the largest explanation, the longest explanation. He quotes Isaiah explaining why it is that the Jews rejected him. And he does so in terms of, of two... Oh, I was going to say one other thing. The end of that passage, the believing unbelief or whether this is genuine belief. Look at verse 42. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him because of the Pharisees. They were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, here's my question to you, and I'm not going to be able to answer this for two more weeks. But here's my question to you to get you thinking. Is that genuine belief? Here, many of the rulers believed in him. Now, it's the, the the phrase they believed in him is structured as if John is describing genuine belief, as he has elsewhere in this book. But what was the what was the results of their belief? They weren't confessing him. They didn't say anything. It was quiet. So, is that genuine, true saving faith, or is this another example of believing unbelief, where they believed in him after a sense, but would not confess him openly because they feared? The disapproval of men, because they love the approval of men more than the approval of God. So we have an explanation of their unbelief, and then we have an illustration of either unbelief or weak belief. I'm not quite sure yet, and I don't know if I can ever be sure. In two weeks you'll find out if I've decided whether I'm sure of whether that's real belief that's just cowardly, weak, fearful, or whether it's actually just another example of the same kind of unbelief we've seen all the way through John. So we're going to look today at the explanation of their unbelief. There are two things that work in concert. By concert, I don't mean a big band thing. There are two things that work in concert. That is, they work together. And they work harmoniously together. And they do not conflict at all, though we sometimes think that they do. But there are two things going on here in their unbelief. Human responsibility, verse 7, and God's sovereignty in verses 38 through 40. The human responsibility is described in verse 37 when he says, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. But then John switches over to another explanation for their unbelief. It's not just that they would not believe, but look at verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. That describes an inability. Verse 37 describes an unwillingness to believe. Verse 39 describes an inability to believe. These two things go together. And these are theological concepts that we are familiar with because they are all through Scripture human responsibility, and divine sovereignty. And these two ideas, these two theological concepts, we have seen them described all the way through the Gospel of John as well. Every time Jesus gave an invitation, believe, believe the light, come to me, embrace me, receive eternal life. All of those invitations are legitimate invitations. They're genuine invitations. They're invitations given to men who are morally responsible to embrace the truth and to believe the truth so that they might be saved. And they are responsible for their rejection. And when they reject the truth, they are responsible for that rejection. But at the same time, we have seen all the way through the Gospel of John in chapter 3 that a man must be born again before he even can believe. And John chapter 6, it's only those who are given by the Father to the Son that actually come to the Son. And no man has the ability to come to the Son unless the Father who sent him draws him. And we saw it in John chapter 10. Only the sheep will come, and there are some, like the Pharisees, who were not His sheep. So we see human responsibility, the appeal to believe the truth, and divine sovereignty. And here in this passage, they are stated one in one verse, and the other in the next verse. Those two together. Now whenever we get to a passage, and there are many of them in Scripture, where human responsibility and divine sovereignty are placed side by side for us, whenever we get to a passage like that, we are always tempted to do a couple of things. First, I want you to notice that John does this when he's describing human responsibility and divine sovereignty. He does this without apologizing for the fact that this might be confusing to us. Did you notice that? You never read any New Testament author, any biblical author, say, look, what I'm about to say to you, I know it's confusing. I know this is going to sound like a contradiction, but it's truly not. Just trust me. They never apologize for it. They never apologize and say... I'm going to offend you by talking about the sovereignty of God or I'm going to offend you by talking about the responsibility of man. There's no explanation as to the fact that in their minds, these two things might not go together. There's no no disharmony between these two things as far as the biblical authors are concerned. They can talk of human responsibility and divine sovereignty and not see any problem. Why we see a problem with it, I don't know. It perplexes me. Why we even have a problem with it, we shouldn't. None of the biblical authors did. They just simply said, this is true and this is true. Now we are, when we read passages like this, we are tempted to try to harmonize these ideas of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't harmonize it. Don't try and find some way of explaining one of them in a way that doesn't contradict the other one because they don't contradict each other. They're... It doesn't even make sense to say they're already harmonized because there's no such thing as harmonizing truth. Truth just is. There's no need to reconcile it. Spurgeon said you only reconcile parties that are at hostility or enmity with one another. And the doctrines of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not at war with each other. So we don't need to reconcile them. There's no reconciling these truths. They're both true. So if you take human responsibility and you say, or divine sovereignty, if you take divine sovereignty and you say, we need to somehow describe sovereignty in terms that it doesn't conflict with My notion of human libertarian free will. Then you start taking the word sovereignty and defining it differently and taking this away and sort of twisting that and compressing that, trying to get it so that somehow will match up with your idea of human responsibility. When you do that, you end up with a God who is neither free nor sovereign. You can't do that. You end up with a God who is not God. And you end up with an idea of sovereignty that doesn't even reflect the biblical idea of sovereignty or any idea of sovereignty. Or if you take the notion of human free will and you say, I need to somehow explain human responsibility and free will in terms that will mesh with my idea of divine sovereignty, then you end up sometimes stripping man of his actual responsibility and making God the moral author and the moral agent of sin. On the one case, if you twist divine, uh, divine sovereignty to make it fit your idea of free will, you're going to end up as a Arminian, a Pelagian, and ultimately an open theist. Because that open theism, which you've been reading about in the newsletter, is the natural logical result of Arminianism. The consistent Arminian is an open theist. That's it. If you take human free will and you start twerking that, twerking, that's the wrong word. That has a, <laughs> tweaking, sorry. That is a cultural word It should have, we're not twerking with human free will. If you tweak human free will in such a way as to make it fit your notion of divine sovereignty, Then you're going to end up as a hyper-Calvinist who doesn't believe that man is actually responsible, that man actually chooses anything, but that we are all just predetermined divine robots. And you're going to end up with some form of theistic determinism, which is not biblical either. Instead, we simply have to let the text stand and say what it says. Man is responsible and God is sovereign. And if you can't see how that works out, it's so now my job to reconcile it in your mind or to alter the teaching on either side of it. Today we're going to deal with human responsibility. We're going to talk about what that means. We're going to talk about the implications of it. And next week we're going to talk about divine sovereignty. And then when we are done with that, I'm going to try and find some way to bring them both together and show you how these things work in conjunction with one another without conflicting with each other at all. They work in harmony and in concert. So let's talk about human responsibility. Verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They were not believing in him. When John says, though they were performing, though he had performed so many signs, the words so many there are intended to call to our minds the volume and the scope of the miracles that Jesus did. John is indicating there that though he has recorded seven miracles in his gospel, That is only representative of what Jesus did. It's not a comprehensive list. And those seven miracles are the the changing of the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, the multiplying bread and fish and feeding the multitude, walking on water, healing the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Though He had performed all of those miracles before the people, and they were witnesses to Him, and to those miracles, yet they would not believe. They remained in their unbelief. That was their responsibility. That was their choice. That was their desire. They did not desire to come to the light. They wanted to remain in their unbelief, and they continued to remain in unbelief, even though Jesus had performed so many signs, so many miracles. And John's catalog of those seven miracles, this is, as I said, not a comprehensive list, but it is a representative list. There are Miracles in John's Gospel from almost all the categories of miracles that Jesus did. There are creative miracles, like turning water into wine, multiplying bread and fish. Those are creative miracles. There are miracles where He demonstrated His power over nature, like walking on water. There are miracles where He healed the sick, like the man at the pool of the nobleman's son, and and made the lame to walk, like the man at the pool of Bethesda, and made the blind to see. And then there are miracles of resurrection, what He did. So all of these different categories of miracles that Jesus has done, John has taken a couple, one or a couple of them, from each of these categories, and he's given us a representative sample. And what was the purpose of John doing that? To show us that everything Jesus said about Himself was true. And you look at the miracles that He did, and you can only come to one conclusion. This man is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the incarnate Word who has always existed. And John has told us that from the beginning of the the book. This is the Word who has made flesh. And you and I are supposed to come to no other conclusion other than that the man that we are reading about is the I Am of the Old Testament manifested, incarnate, in human flesh. He is the incarnate Word. And we are to bow down, we are to worship, we are to trust, we are to love, we are to respect, we are to adore, we are to make him lord we are to bow before him as lord we are to embrace this one and and repose ourselves upon this one that is why john is writing this epistle and in fact in spite of the fact that he had done all of those miracles yet they remained in unbelief they saw things that you and i will never see they heard things that you and i will never hear They saw those things and they witnessed them and their hands handled concerning the word of life. They were eyewitnesses to those events. And yet they saw all of that unfold before them and they said, I will not believe. That was their responsibility. That's the choice they made because they loved the darkness and they wouldn't come to the light. And their love for the darkness made them respond to all of that light and all of that truth with nothing else than irrational unbelief. And the miracles that Jesus did were were daunting in their nature and daunting in their scope. Moses and Elijah, Moses and Joshua never did anything like Jesus did. Elijah and Elisha never did anything like Jesus did. The apostles which followed Jesus never had the type of scope, the scope of the type of miracles that Jesus performed. The sheer volume, the number of miracles that Jesus did, as well as the the grande o scale of these miracles was something that would left the Jews absolutely without excuse. They could never deny that He had done a miracle. They accused Him of doing it in the power of the devil. They tried to explain the power behind Him doing it. They even tried to discredit people to whom He did the miracles, like the man born blind, suggesting that His parents had lied about their son being born blind or that the man had never really been blind or had never been born blind. that The whole thing was a hoax. They tried to explain the miracles. They tried to discredit the recipients of the miracles. They tried to discredit the doer of the miracles, but they could never deny that He actually did the miracles. They knew He did the miracles, And the fact of the miracles was a truth right before them which they saw and they witnessed. And John says, in spite of the fact that he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Now that was their choice. Their moral responsibility was to believe the light that God had given to them. So now you can understand why it is that Jesus would leave and he would just hide himself from them. Look, if you're going to reject that light, guess what you deserve? No light. And that is what mankind gets when he rejects the truth. That is what we saw spelled out in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like a four-footed beast or a creeping thing or a snake. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So what did God do? You get exactly what you deserve. He will turn you over. He will give you over to a depraved mind to fulfill the lust of your flesh. And when you indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, then He gives you over to a depraved mind to the next step, which is a sexual immorality. And eventually you get to the point where God gives you over in His judgment You can't even think right. You have a depraved mind so that you actually approve of the immoral acts that are being done. It's not that just you do them, but you actually approve of those who do them. That's the judgment that God gives to those who reject the light and reject the truth. So this is responsibility of man. Now let me make sort of three observations from this and sort of flesh out what this responsibility means. And the reason I'm taking a little bit more time on human responsibility today and and the implications of this is because this is the last time in the Gospel of John that we are going to have a chance to really deal with the human responsibility behind unbelief. Which means that it's going to be a while before we tackle this again, because it might be a bit before we get through John into the next book where we might address it again. So let me give you three truths, three three truths, and you can write these down if you want. First, first thing we learn from verse 37 is that evidence cannot convince anyone. Evidence cannot convince anyone. Evidence itself is unable to convert the heart because an unbeliever does not need new evidence. An unbeliever does not need old evidence presented in a persuasive way. What does an unbeliever need? He needs a new heart. He needs to have his eyes opened. The problem is not with a lack of evidence. Evidence itself cannot convert anybody. It cannot change the heart. If evidence could convert somebody, who would have been saved in the Gospel of John? The whole nation of Israel. He went from the north to the south, from the east to the west, from river to sea, from north border to south border, doing miracles in almost every city that he went into. If, 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 if evidence were able to convert the heart, The entire nation of Israel would have been saved. The religious leaders would have been saved. They saw the resurrection of Lazarus. They saw the miracles that he did. He did all of them before them. But the evidence itself was unable to change or convert their heart. You know who else would have been saved in the Bible if evidence had the ability to convince people and to change the heart to convert somebody? The whole nation of Israel in Moses' day. They saw all of the signs in Egypt. And they got to the Red Sea. And what did they do? Grumble, complain, and doubt. And then God opened up the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. And what was their response? Grumbling, complaining, and doubt. And then God opened up a rock and split it and poured out the water for the entire nation and gave them all water to drink in the desert. And what was their response? Grumbling, complaining, and doubt. So God gave them manna every day to provide for their needs so that they would never be hungry. And what was their response? Grumbling and complaining and doubt. So then God gave them quail. And what was their response? Grumbling, complaining, and doubt. You see the pattern? All of those signs, did they really believe No. Then they sent the twelve spies into the land of Canaan. And they came back with a report. And two of them said, God's given us the land. These men are like, though we are like grasshoppers in their sight, God will deliver them into our hands. We just need to trust Him and move forward. Ten of them doubted. The entire nation was swayed by the ten. And what was the response of the nation? Grumbling, complaining, and doubt. you know what they should have done? They should have just plowed forward, trusting in God. If evidence could convert the heart or convince the mind, the entire nation of Israel would have been saved in the days of Moses. And the entire nation of Israel would have been saved in the days of Jesus. But what was their response? Unbelief. Because evidence cannot convince anyone of anything. It is unable to do that. Evidence has a role, but it is not the conversion of the heart. Evidence has its role, but it is not the conversion of the heart. Evidence can't do that. Evidence cannot convict or convert a sinner. When I first got saved, this is what I thought would be the key to reaching my unsaved friends and family. I thought if I can, ju- I, 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 now I have my new faith, and I went to Bible college, a newbie, a greenie, knowing there was Genesis and Revelation, and I didn't know much of anything in between. But I thought, I'll go to Bible college, I'll get all of this education behind me, I'll learn the, the proofs for my Christian faith, I'll get get all of this package together, I can come back and I can win the world to Christ. I just need to be really good at presenting evidences. So I read evidence that demands a verdict, and evidence that demands a verdict too, and evidence that demands more verdicts, and more verdicts that demand evidence. And every apologetic book I could get my hands on, I read. More than a carpenter... I read all of those. I collected a library of apologetics books, and I memorized all of the proofs against evolution and for young earth creationism, and, and got all of that, and that all the arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the anthropological argument, and every argument that I, could, that I could conceive of. I got all of them lined up, and I thought if I can just, now that I've got all my apologetics material and all my evidences and my proofs all in a line, now I can convince my friends and my family to come to faith in Christ. All they need to do is hear a convincing display of the evidence. All they need to do is hear a convincing presentation of the evidence and they'll get saved. And guess what? Think it worked? No, because evidence cannot convert anyone. And in the church we make this same mistake all the time and it is expressed in a thousand different ways. We think if we if we just get the music leader to cue the music at just the right time, we can elicit a response from people. Or if we can just get a pastor who could speak more eloquently than Jim, which is not difficult to do, we could get a far greater response in our community. And if we could just get somebody, maybe our Easter service, what we really need with our resurrection service when we have unbelievers that you drag here so unwillingly on that Sunday morning. If we could just get somebody to speak better, to present all the evidences of the resurrection, all they need to hear is the evidence presented in a convincing fashion. And they'll believe. Is that true? No, it's not. No, it's not. The people in Jesus, Jesus said to the people of his day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the people of Capernaum. Why? Because they saw signs Capernaum. They saw signs and they rejected that truth. The amount of light that they rejected was so great. If anyone would have been saved by evidence, it would have been the people of Jesus' day. But evidence cannot convert anyone. It's unable to do that. has its role, but it is not the conversion of the heart. The second thing we can draw from the passage is that unbelievers do not lack evidence. Unbelievers do not lack evidence. It is a folly to think that the unbelieving atheist is an atheist because he doesn't know the evidence that you know. He's not. You can share with him everything you know, and guess what? He will remain an atheist unless God changes his heart. Because evidence can't convert anybody. And it is a folly to believe that unbelievers lack any evidence. They don't. That's the point of Romans chapter 1. Since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes of God have been on display for all that has been created. And God has made the reality of his existence and his person and his nature, if even his eternal power and Godhead. He has made that so plain to them, so obvious to them that they are without excuse. Even the even the the tribal jungle native in deep in the reaches of South America who has never heard the name of Jesus, never seen a Bible, never been exposed to anything Christian, or ever seen a white man is responsible before God and will be judged before God for his sin because he has rejected the light of creation and the light of conscience. And he has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image like unto a four-footed beast, a creeping thing, or a snake. And since he has made that willful exchange, that he has willfully rejected the light, God will hold him morally responsible. He, Every atheist has the same evidence that you and I have. And he knows what the truth is. And the truth is so obvious and so plain. But you know what Romans 1 says he does with the truth? That even though they know God, what do they do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that is an active word. It describes an active suppressing of the truth. They know the truth, but they love their sin so much that they take what they know to be true and they deny it. And that's why the Bible says that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Because only a fool would deny what is obvious to everybody. And it is obvious to the atheist. The atheist has as much evidence as he needs to believe everything that you and I believe, and to embrace everything that you and I have embraced. The problem is not his lack of evidence. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, and and, and all of his attributes are on display, even for the atheist. He doesn't lack evidence. It is a folly to think that if an atheist had the same evidence that we have, that he would believe. He won't. Because what is it that made us believe? Evidence? It wasn't. Now maybe you studied Christian faith and you looked at the evidences and the arguments and you became convinced through those things, but I can guarantee you it is not the evidence itself that converted you. It was the Spirit of God giving you, opening your eyes to the truth, the evidence that you saw, and regenerating your heart that made you believe. It was not the evidence itself that converted you. That was the grace of God. What you needed was not evidence. What you needed was the work of God in the heart to change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh so that you could believe, so that you could see the light, so the truth would be obvious to you and be embraced by you. You needed a work of God. There's a whole movement in Christianity today that says that what we need today is modern day signs and wonders. Because if we could take the gospel and present the gospel, but we could do signs and wonders like Jesus and the apostles did, then the signs and the wonders would convince people that the gospel is true. And they argue, this is mostly in charismatic circles, but they would argue that modern day signs and wonders have to accompany the presentation of the preaching of the gospel so that people would be convinced that the gospel is true. What does verse 37 tell you about that theology? What's the problem with that theology? Can miracles convince anybody of anything? No, they can't. They can't convince anybody of anything. So, evidence is powerless, it cannot convert anybody, and unbelievers do not lack evidence. And by the way, since we're on this subject, it is a folly. It is a folly to think that we, our job, is to convince men that God exists and to give them proof for the Christian faith. And I'll tell you why it's a folly. It is a folly to put God on trial before an unbeliever and make an unregenerate, unbelieving rebel, the jury, and God on trial, as if we are defense attorneys whose job it is to acquit God of the alleged crime of not giving men sufficient evidence of his existence. That is a folly. The unbeliever, the atheist, knows that God exists. He knows it. It is obvious to him. And so, I refuse to put God on trial and to defend him to the atheist. We simply have to present the truth. Now you might say, well, Jim, if I have all of my apologetic arguments and all of my uh, evidences of young earth creationism and all of my evidences that God exists, I have all of this and I packaged all of this together and I got it all ready. I've read evidence that demands a verdict, all 15 volumes of it, and I'm ready to go. And now you have crushed my heart by telling me that I can't convince anybody And that all of my presentation of that truth cannot convince anybody, what am I going to do? Listen, you got you need two things. You need God's Word, and you need God's Spirit, and you have both. That's it. You don't need a degree in apologetics. You don't need to become a professional presenter. You don't have to be articulate. You just have to share the truth and leave the results with God. Men are responsible because, and men are held responsible because, the evidence of God is obvious, and no matter where you are at, you are around creation. Creation itself is evidence that God is powerful and that God exists. The atheist knows that, and he actively suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The third thing that we can glean from this is that unbelief is utterly inexcusable, utterly inexcusable. Unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is, is taking something that is obvious and denying that it is true. As I saying, I don't breathe oxygen. I don't speak a word of English. Those are statements and those are realities that, and simply denying what is obvious to everybody who sees it. The atheist does the exact same thing with creation. He looks at everything that is created and denies that anything created it. He looks at what exists and denies that anything is responsible for its existence. And he believes things about creation and about the natural world that he would never believe in any other arena of study or observation. Never believe it. And he denies the plain truth of these things, making his unbelief utterly irrational and completely inexcusable. He will be held accountable for his unbelief because the plain truth is obvious to everybody and it is obvious to the atheist. And here's the dirty little secret. Every atheist knows, he knows that God exists. He knows it. He just won't admit it. And he won't admit it because, not because he lacks evidence, but because he what? Loves darkness. We've said this a thousand times, maybe that's an exaggeration, probably not, since John chapter 3. The cause of unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence, it is always due to a love for darkness. It's always due to a love for darkness. Jesus diagnosed the problem. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who, hates, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What is the problem with the unbeliever's heart, the atheist's heart? It is never an intellectual issue. Every Atheists don't have intellectual objections to the faith. They don't have them. They know God exists, and they know the truth, that Scripture is true. God is revealed to them not only in creation, but also in conscience, and they know that these things are true. Now, an atheist would say, an atheist would say, no, 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 my problems are really intellectual problems. The response to that is not, you're wrong. Your problem is not an intellectual problem. Your problem is a moral problem. Love for darkness is not an intellectual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. And every objection against God and against God's word and against God's truth, every intellectual objection is nothing more than a smokescreen to hide the moral problem, which is a love for darkness. Let me say it again. Every intellectual objection raised against the truth of God's word is nothing more than a smokescreen to hide their real moral problem, which is a love for darkness. There is no such thing as an intellectual obstacle to faith. It's a moral obstacle. The atheist does not want to bow the knee and worship God because that would interfere with his worship of himself. The atheist does not want to admit that truth is outside of him because he likes to determine truth for himself. The atheist does not want to recognize that there is a moral standard that he falls short of and then confess his guilt because that would mean that he would have to confess that he has done something wrong and that he is in need of forgiveness. The atheist does not want to acknowledge the truth. That is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. And all the objections that are raised are nothing more than smokescreens to hide the real moral issue, which is that the unbeliever loves darkness and hates the light. Now an atheist would object and say, no, 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 I really do have legitimate intellectual obstacles to believing the Christian faith. And my response to that would be, no, you don't. And I'm not going to rewrite my entire worldview just because you are living under the delusion that you are neutral. You are not neutral. You're hostile to God. You're an enemy of God. You deny what is plain and obvious and true. And you do so willingly. And you will be held responsible for your rejection of the light. And if God in his judgment would withhold or withdraw the light from you, then you are getting exactly what you want, which is more and more darkness and increasing and increasing darkness. Now that's human responsibility. Now in concert with that is another grand truth. And that is that there is a sovereign or divine side to the unbelief of the nation of Israel. And that is God's judicial act of judging the nation for their rejection of the truth, which we will sort of dive into that. We could, I guess we could have had some time to do it today with a few minutes, but uh, there's no sense introducing this without being able to kind of d- dive into it a bit more deeply. So, human responsibility and divine sovereignty, and we'll tackle divine sovereignty, verses 38 through 40 next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you that you have delivered us from the darkness. And we are reminded again that it is not because of the persuasiveness of an argument or the persuasiveness of of an evidence that has convinced us that your Son is who he said he was and is, and that your word is true, it is because you have opened our eyes by your grace to see those things which are obvious from creation and from conscience. So we owe our illumination not to our own wisdom or our own doing or our own decision or our own intellectual brightness, but merely to your grace. And keep us constantly remembering that it is your grace and your grace alone which has opened our eyes and saved us. We gladly bow the knee before you and give you the glory for our salvation from first to last, for it is your work, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org.